Welcome to a special podcast series from Finnegan, exploring some of the hottest topics in the life sciences industry. In this episode, we're talking about the importance of clinical trial-based patent applications and strategic considerations to keep in mind for these type of patents. Our guests are Finnegan attorneys Jeff Jacobstein, Lulu Wang, and Sarah Lyman. Thank you all for your time today. I'll dive in with the headline question, Jeff. Just how important are patent applications based on clinical trials, and what are some of the issues to consider when evaluating potential applications? Great question. As you implied, patent applications based on clinical trials can be of vital importance to life science companies, whether they're seeking to attract financial investment or simply to expand the scope and term of protection around a research asset. These types of patent applications are often an important tool in a company's arsenal. Big or small, life science companies are almost always focused on ways to convert the huge amounts of resources invested in clinical trials into meaningful patent protection. But in addition to being important, these types of applications can present unique challenges on the road to patentability. They typically arise in the context of known therapeutic compounds. So these are ones that are being used to treat indications that have been studied in the past in a lot of instances. Likewise, there may be preclinical or early stage clinical data out there in the public domain on the very compounds that a company plans to use in future and wants to get patent protection around. As the business and research divisions move forward to develop and promote that product, the difficulties for patent practitioners can only increase. In particular, we often see challenges obtaining and enforcing patents because of the legal doctrine of inherent anticipation. And this can often come up in the context of, say, clinical trial protocols or in other contexts from presentations made by researchers at the company or other types of business disclosures. Those same types of disclosures can also present difficult obviousness challenges for getting clinical trial patents as well. As a consequence, there is a pressure to file applications quickly at an early stage, preferably before too much information has been disclosed by the research team. But on the flip side, that pressure to file early can lead to complications in particular with regard to providing adequate enablement and written description support for claimed inventions. Okay, you mentioned inherent anticipation, particularly where a company has disclosed a clinical trial protocol before filing a patent application. How can clinical trial plans trip up a patent filing strategy? Well, there are a couple ways that can happen, but one common way to think about is the doctrine of inherent anticipation, which most countries apply. Under that doctrine, if you disclose a product or a process publicly, it may be the case that resulting properties you later identify will not be patentable. These newly discovered properties, though previously unrecognized, uh, were often present when practicing the prior art. In the U.S., for instance, the courts have explained how a, a property that is necessarily and inevitably obtained by practicing the prior art is not patentable. So to put this in the context of a clinical trial, let's imagine that a company publishes a protocol saying a trial sponsor plans to evaluate a drug, we'll call it drug X, given it say 10 or 50 units daily to treat a disease, we'll call it disease Y. And the protocol specifies that particular clinical endpoints are going to be evaluated. If the data that comes out of that trial ultimately shows that drug X is successful at 50 units at meeting the clinical trial endpoint, that property alone will be difficult to pursue in a patent claim. A patent examiner or a third party challenging a patent, if it did ultimately manage to get through the patent office, would likely argue that a skilled artisan following the published protocol would necessarily and inevitably have met the clinical outcome. In other words, that practicing what was disclosed in the protocol would yield what was now in the patent claim. 
So the goal for the patent attorney in that scenario is typically to identify some other feature that would not have necessarily been obtained by practicing the prior art. For example, the data might identify certain patients who say respond better to treatment, or it might turn out that a drug's effectiveness wanes over time and certain changes to the dosing regimen need to be made. If so, a new claim based on that treatment regimen might be patentable because it wasn't apparent from the original study design. So those are the types of discoveries that a patent practitioner will be looking for. They allow a patent application to capitalize on information that just wasn't inherent in what was disclosed previously. Impacts via Ventus is a good example of how this type of this concept of inherent anticipation can trip up a clinical trial patent. There, the claims recited a method of treating ALS by administering an effective amount of a drug called Rilazole. A prior art reference disclosed a list of compounds that might be useful in treating ALS, one of which was Rilazole. But that compound was not prominently featured, and the, the paper that was cited in the case did not provide any clinical data to support the use of Rilazole. Nevertheless, the Federal Circuit found that the prior art's disclosure of Rilazole and its use to treat ALS was sufficient to anticipate the claims, even though the prior art did not identify an effective amount or a dosing regimen. So I think you can see from this that this quickly becomes a fact-intensive inquiry and presents a lot of challenges, particularly in terms of balancing the need to wait for research to support a claimed invention against the risk that that delay will lead to disclosures before a patent application can get put on file. And even if an applicant can find a way to avoid inherent anticipation and thereby capitalize on the data coming from a clinical trial, there's still a risk that delay in filing may allow others to argue that the claimed invention is obvious over other preclinical work that was already out there, or maybe public disclosures made by the research team or the business group in the interim. That's an interesting point about the challenges clinical trial patents face with regard to obviousness. Lulu, can you remind us of the elements to consider for obviousness and how they play out in the context of clinical trial applications? Well, fundamentally, finding of obviousness requires a few things. So first, you need evidence that all of the elements of the claimed invention are disclosed, either explicitly or implicitly in the art. And you need motivation to combine those elements from the prior art to arrive at the claimed invention. And lastly, you need reasonable expectation of success that the claimed invention is actually going to work for its intended purpose. And that last point is an important one for clinical trial patents. Reasonable expectation of success is something more than you just hoping the invention will work but it can be something less than a totally completed study. So that's the factual inquiry that Jeff was talking about that really turns on what a person of ordinary skill in your field at the time of the invention would have concluded. Now, clinical trials often build on earlier preclinical work. So that might involve studies in animal models of human disease, or proposals for how you're going to run your clinical trials. And in many of this, uh, in many cases, this type of work, so those animal experiments, a journal article, a clinical trial protocol that's posted on a regulatory agency website, those types of works can really create for you a pretty tricky needle to thread. Right. Once you're ready to file a patent application on your clinical trial, 
you don't necessarily want those earlier disclosures, your press releases, your posters to be used against you as prior art. Now, reasonable expectation of success or, you know, more aptly, the lack of reasonable expectation of success can really help a patent applicant avoid that finding of obviousness. For example, in a 2019 decision, the Federal Circuit in OSI versus Apotex found that claims related to an epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitor to treat non-small cell lung cancer were non-obvious because there was no showing of that reasonable expectation of success. And there, there were actually a number of disclosures in the prior art, including reports that that inhibitor worked really well in preclinical models of other types of cancers. The company had a regulatory statement, a 10K, describing the inhibitor as potent. And that same 10K statement actually stated that phase one trials had been completed in cancer patients and that phase two trials were underway. But helpfully, there were numerous reports in the prior art for non-small cell lung cancer programs that had failed, including ones that involved EGFR inhibitor compounds. The PTAB actually found the claims to be obvious, finding that there was reasonable expectation of success, but the federal circuit reversed. And there they noted that the prior art provided no data for the treatment of that non-small cell lung cancer, besides which the treatment of that particular cancer was, quote, highly unpredictable in the field. There was a greater than 99% uh, failure rate for drugs that were entering phase two trials for that type of cancer. So in the end, Despite all those publications and statements that OSI itself put into the public domain, the patent was saved by the overall unpredictability in the field and the lack of conclusive data establishing that that inhibitor would have worked to treat that specific cancer. It sounds like reasonable expectation of success can be an important doctrine for patent owners defending against obviousness challenges. But is this a well-settled area of law for patent owners to rely on? Right. Um, one can't always rely on having facts like those in OSI, right? So no data actually being disclosed in the art, a fairly low rate of clinical trial success. Usually what you see is a little bit more tension than that, especially when you're pursuing filings on a new dosage or a known drug to treat a new indication. The 2018 Yeda versus Mylan decision comes to mind. There, the claims at issue related to a drug dosing regimen uh, for a certain amount of that drug given in three injections over seven days. Now, the prior art disclosed administering the same amount of the same drug every other day. If you do the math there, the difference amounts to one injection different over the course of two weeks. And there, the Federal Circuit affirmed the PTAB's finding of reasonable expectation of success and the finding of obviousness. 
the court was pretty skeptical that there was anything unexpected about changing that dosing regimen, especially in view of testimony that the claimed compound was a pretty forgiving drug and had a wide range of probably efficacious doses. Similar dosing regimens had actually been reported to produce virtually identical therapeutic outcomes in the prior literature. Now, Yeda did argue that the pharmacokinetics wouldn't have been predictable, but the Federal Circuit didn't find that persuasive given other evidence that the drug was tolerant to changes in dosing. So there, uh, you can really contrast that with the OSI case, where clinical success for that particular indication was relatively rare. And again, there were no data specifically disclosed in the prior art. So this really highlights how the reasonable expectation of success doctrine, as we call it, is really a a very fact-dependent inquiry. And again, you're right, we can't always rely on having facts that are as strong or as good as those in OSI, which is to say there are limitations on how much you can rely on the reasonable expectation of success doctrine to avoid the prior art. Now, in the context of clinical trials, that prior art is very likely to be your own disclosures, your own press releases, your own journal articles, um, or other disclosures, including your own patent disclosures. So you'll likely need to be particularly careful about controlling the flow of information and how public disclosures characterize the trials and what they are or are not expected to show. You also don't necessarily, of course, want to be put in the position of disparaging your own prior patents uh, when they get cited as prior art. And Sarah, are there proactive steps that life sciences companies can take to better insulate themselves from their own prior art disclosures? I'd say there are two main steps that life sciences companies can take. So one would be establishing a strong pre-publication review system, and the second is to develop a patent application filing strategy in coordination with that pre-publication review. So even though these are two steps, they really are interconnected. On the first point, the company can use a pre-publication review system to screen for disclosures that may implicate current clinical programs or even future clinical programs. In addition, Penn Council can use these disclosures evaluated through pre-publication review to identify patentable inventions in the first place. And in some instances, uh, council can even propose experiments to the company's research team that can be conducted and used to strengthen the patentability story before any further public disclosures are made or further patent applications are filed. To back up a little bit and add some specifics to this, there are many different types of disclosures that can be implicated in this and evaluated through the pre-publication review system. So these can vary, but typically fall into two categories. One is required disclosures like postings on clinicaltrials.gov and regulatory submissions. And there are more voluntary disclosures as well, such as conference abstracts or presentations, journal articles, and press releases. 
It's worth keeping in mind, though, that there are certain types of disclosures, like conference talks and press releases, that can be more prone to effusive language, particularly if they're given by people who aren't as well versed in patent law. And these types of more effusive statements can contribute to a reasonable expectation of success. So those types of disclosures might warrant particularly close scrutiny. This risk shows the importance also of educating scientific and business development teams who may not have the benefit of a strong background in patent law on the importance of the pre-publication review system to the company to minimize any unapproved public statements. So once patent counsel know of these planned disclosures, what can they do to shield against prior art? Well, they can compare the content of those disclosures to the company's existing patent portfolio and either confirm that the disclosures don't merit any additional filings, or patent counsel can develop a strategy to prevent the disclosures from raising prior art concerns. For example, they could identify that a planned press release would reveal clinical trial results not yet disclosed in the patent application. So here, the solution may be holding off on the press release or modifying the press release to remove some language or filing a patent application to cover that new data so that the press release can proceed unedited. That brings us full circle on those steps that life sciences companies can take to avoid creating troublesome prior art for themselves namely monitoring for disclosures, and then if necessary, filing applications in coordination with those disclosures. For instance, Lulu had just mentioned OSI. In that case, the company's 10K disclosure didn't end up rendering the patent claims obvious. However, OSI likely could have avoided some headaches by coordinating a patent filing with the planned 10K disclosure so that it would not have become prior at all. But what if companies need to make a quick or unplanned disclosure? Are there risks to filing an application to beat that disclosure? You're right. Sudden disclosures happen. They happen all the time. And at times, pre-publication review is easier said than done. And you're also right to expect that there are risks. As Jeff alluded to earlier, filing an application early can risk having insufficient guidance to teach the public how to make and use the claimed invention. So it's not as simple as filing an application every time scientist is ready to say that their preclinical or clinical studies are looking promising. For one thing, it's pretty expensive to do that. For another, if the company doesn't have enough data or any data ready to include in an application at the time of the disclosure, they could find themselves with a non-obvious but still unpatentable invention. All right. Well, thank you, Sarah. We'll leave the discussion there for now. You've been listening to a special podcast from Finnegan one of the largest IP law firms in the world. We've been speaking with Finnegan attorneys Jeff Jacobstein, Lulu Wang, and Sarah Lyman. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan. Finnegan.